0: All right, good morning. I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. If you would be turning in your Bibles to Joel chapter 3. We'll be in verses 1 through 8 this morning. And just as a, by way of reminder... Um, we're in the section of Joel that is talking about the hope that is to come uh, and what we know is the return of Christ. And as we saw last week, uh, there was a foreshadowing of Pentecost and what is to come when the gift of the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us when Emmanuel is with us. And so we, we saw that, that, and we live on the other side of that. We look uh, not forward to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but we live out of the Holy Spirit who has been poured out Upon us. What we're going to see here this morning is coming judgment, and uh, that is a difficult subject for the church in so many respects. And so we want to try to be very careful about how we approach that topic this morning. Make sure that you're hearing what uh, I'm actually saying. And so if there's something that you hear that you're a little bit confused about or you're confused about the implications of how far do you carry that in one direction or the other, let's talk. This is a great way for the church to grow in its understanding of the concept of biblical justice and God's judgment and why it actually is a key part of the hope of the people of God. And as we step into that, here's the key truth that I want you to walk away with this morning uh, is that we are called to reflect God's justice in our relationships with those who bear His image, recognizing the cost of injustice to the generations of both the oppressor and the oppressed. Let me read that again. We are called to reflect God's justice. And our relationships with those who bear his image, recognizing the cost of injustice to the generations of both the oppressor and the oppressed. And so key questions straight away, and this is everything turns on this question. How we answer this question is how you're going to hear the whole rest of the sermon or not hear. So what comes to your mind when you hear the word Justice. There's any range of things, depending on who you are and where you're from. It's any range of things based on your life experience, the things that you have suffered or not suffered. For many, I think that this has become an interesting word. And do remember what Satan's great project is. What, what's, since he is not omniscient and he's not omnipotent, what must he rob the church of? What's his favorite thing to twist? language God's word in particular. So key words he loves to get a hold of contort so that we are talking past each other and better. What he really loves for us to do is become disunified or go at each other so the world can see. This doesn't make a bit of difference at all. So we want to be careful that in a word like justice that's become a hot topic in our culture for actually quite a long time. It was a very divisive word when the PCA came out of the PCUS. It was a divisive word when uh, northern Presbyterians departed from southern Presbyterians. It was a divisive word uh, all throughout, and it's currently been uh, a cause of great division within the PCA, which is short for Presbyterian Church in America, which is our denomination that we're a part of. It is a word in which we have gotten all tangled up, and angry with one another, and have lobbed hand grenades at each other online, all the while uh, key stuff is going on that we're not participating in. I made the observation in the fasting seminar earlier. You do remember the scene where uh, um, the transfiguration has just occurred. This is Mark chapter 9. And uh, as they come off the mountain, and they have seen such great glory, and they're, they're ready to charge hell with a water pistol, so they thought. And they immediately encounter a circumstance where a young man is being cast into the fire by a demon. Right? And the Pharisees are standing around, and the dad's grieving and wringing his hands. And the disciples are like, I'm saying, we got it. We'll take care of it. And nothing happens, right? And so then they get into an argument with the Pharisees about why it's not working and why they're as powerless as everybody else. All the while, the demon continues to roll the boy around in the fire. Here's my question. Why didn't somebody put out the fire? I'm serious. But isn't that us? The whole while, actual things that we could tangibly be getting involved in, we're not. Instead, we're standing around a circle, accusing one another of being powerless and liars and having the wrong theology and not being of the right denomination and not being of the right size and shape and form and fashion. All the while, the fire rages. All the while, innocent people are being burned. You Remember what Jesus did. Very calmly approached the father, and the father said, hey, I want to believe you, but you've got to help my unbelief. And Jesus takes care of it, you remember, right? And the disciples are like, right, tell us the method. Like, what was the, because th- we had it, we were like brushing horse hair, and we, we thought we had it, and it didn't, it didn't quite go down like that. Is it left or right? Now, that's not how it goes if you've read the story, but it's kind of the tenor of it if you use your imagination. And what does Jesus say? This kind comes out only by prayer, and in some uh, some it says fasting, prayer and fasting. by you actually engaging the gospel with the means of grace? And you could have just put the fire out too, by the way. <laughs> but instead, we get all tangled up, don't we? So let's not let this term, justice, which is a biblical term, a key biblical term, a key aspect, hear me, a key component of God's character. You cannot have a God who is unjust and him have any power at all. Miroslav Volf, if you're familiar with him at all, wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. and He's not just anybody. He's somebody who has suffered deeply at the hands of the the whole um, uh, Serbian-Bosnian conflict in which a ton of blood has been shed over the centuries, but most notably, uh, a ton was shed back in the 80s. And he was part of the reconciliation process, and he makes this comment, and I think it's fascinating to think about, and I think it's important for us as we think about justice. He says, it is only in the comfort of the suburbs of affluence that you can come up with a God who is not just. If you have suffered the bloody fields of oppression and the oppressed, and you want to follow God, and you want to be able to love your neighbor, you must have a God who is just. For some of us, we just have to admit, we've never really been in a position where justice was all that big a deal to us. Them failing to ring up your discount at the local coffee shop is not injustice. Them failing to make your cold brew pumpkin-spiced whatever in the way that you love it, in the right titration, is, is just not injustice. Um, and I drink those, okay, so I'm not throwing stones at you. I like the right titration. I can tell. My wife can tell you. I, I, I am a chemist at, at heart. Uh, and so, uh, and so the, we, we have to recognize that this, this, we just have to recognize that on the issue of justice, maybe we should not be leading the conversation. Maybe we should be learning and listening from those who have suffered and amazingly uh, in ways that, 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 trans, that just transcend our ability to understand, have any desire at all to be part of a church in which we are included. Maybe, maybe, The Spirit is at work, and we are missing out on the conversation in the ways that would be most beneficial to the church of the future, meaning the generations that are coming. And maybe we've got stuff to add to. There's not one voice at the the silencing of the other. But would it make sense for me to go into a room full of women who have suffered immeasurably in terms of of, of physical torture or even have suffered miscarriages and try to speak on how they should feel. Now, I'm a pastor. I've studied the Bible. Are you trying to tell me, Cameron, you've got nothing to say? No, I'm not saying I don't have anything to say. I'm just saying I shouldn't say it until I've learned and heard some things to be able to apply rightly. We ought to be learners. Uh, One of the things that the power of the Holy Spirit grants us in discipleship is that we in great humility can learn and grow for the glory of God, not for the preservation of cultures that won't be in the new heavens, new earth, or systems, or anything else. And so when we hear the word justice, we, we need to pause and reorient ourselves on all sides of this topic to make sure that we are biblical in how we're discussing the term and recognize that our experiences are probably going to weight us in a direction, which is valid, by the way, but ought not be the only. And too often, we want to make it the whole. Let me show my cards straight away, as if you didn't know. See, my position on, on justice is heavily influenced by Joshua's encounter with the angel of the Lord as they were about to, to engage with Jericho. And you do remember the story, I hope, because Joshua encounters this being that is pretty, uh, it shakes him to his core. Now, he's the leader of a people, but even he recognizes he is not the leader of this man. And as he approaches him with caution, because the angel has a sword in his fist, he says, uh, before we get started, um who whose side are you on? And you remember what the angel said? Neither. That's a bad question. The real question, son, is whose side are you on? And so it's important that we recognize that it is not for us to be determining sides. It is for us to be applying the gospel for the sake of the life of the world, which includes, by the way, every tongue, tribe, race, nation, shape, and preference, and all those kind of things as they are submitted to Christ as king. And that's key. Let me also tell you what I am not. I am not a social justice warrior at all. If the definition of that is, and I wouldn't take it on even if it wasn't, but if the definition of that is, is that justice means that the oppressors have no chance to be saved, that someone is automatically saved because they've been oppressed, that is not true and it won't hold biblically. So I am not in any way, shape, or form a social justice warrior. In fact, uh, I, I would argue that I, I don't like the false binary at all. I think, it's, I, think it's, I think it's hurtful to us when we decide, yeah, but I, th- I just think this side's better. And I, I'll turn a blind eye to the weird stuff, and I just got to stick with the part that's going to work out the best. And you may say, well, well thanks a lot, Mr. Barm, you conscientious objector. We, we ain't going to get anywhere with that nonsense. I've read Revelation. We're going to get somewhere, fast or slow. You get to pick. And so, but it's in God's sovereignty, so it's not really fast or slow. It's his exact timing. So we, we can have these kind of conversations so long as we keep in the banks of the river. That just because someone's oppressed doesn't make them saved. Just because someone is an oppressor doesn't make them out. Uh, just because, just because uh, someone is in the majority culture doesn't make them right. Just because somebody's in the minority culture doesn't make them right either. No one person can represent the total complexity of any given situation. Let's be careful. And there's lots of complex situations in this world, depending on where you're from. We happen to be in a particular locale. So please hear what I'm going to say in that key. And as you have questions about things, let's have those conversations. Again, am I (laughs) all-knowing? Hardly. Uh, am I the whole of the body in terms of all of the gifts? <laughs> Not even close. We're all looking through a glass darkly and seeking to glorify the Lord our God. That is going to be a complex thing. Let us do so with humility and grace and peace. All right, so let's turn to the text. This is Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. This is the call to judgment in the valley of God's justice. For behold... In those days, and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. Because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. All right, so to orient ourselves, he says, Behold, in those days and at that time, and then he qualifies, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, and we know this to be when Christ returns and and it's the new heavens new earth, that's when the fortunes will finally be restored. So this is a coming judgment in which God will summon the nations. Now, did you notice that? In the sovereignty of God, it is he who will say, you come and answer to these charges. It is a courtroom motif here. In the rest of the chapter, it's going to be a war motif. It's different, but it's the same event from different perspectives. And so he is calling them to answer the charges that he has leveled against them. So it is his calling, not their choice. And he's calling them to this place called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Much ink has been spilled trying to figure out exactly where and what this is. Some have thought, well, Jehoshaphat, there was a King Jehoshaphat, so maybe it's related to that. It doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, but the word Jehoshaphat just means that God will judge. So it's not necessarily about the place, it's the events. But the fact that it's a valley and not the top of Mount Zion tells us it is not going to be good. It will be hard. It's a hard judgment. And so he says there will be a reckoning. He says he will gather them together and he'll enter into judgment with them there. And he's going to do it on behalf of his people and how they have been treated by the nations. And he doesn't take lightly. When his people are treated as commodity, did you notice that? My people have been sold. What's that? That's slavery. It's interesting to me that people are like nowhere in the Bible does it say God's against slavery. Mm. Maybe you just maybe they just hadn't reached Joel three yet. I don't know, but he is not happy with it as praxis, especially when it's his people. Those who bear his image. So interestingly, who bears God's image uniquely? Everyone. How do we know that? Let's stay biblical now. Let's just not, we're not just making stuff up up here. Well, Genesis 9, if you remember, there's been the flood. And so you, you can't murder people, as it turns out, because why? They bear the image. What people? All of them. So make no mistake that what's being said here, while it, it, it is unique in the sense that it is those who have submitted and would, would say they are Christians, it is not beyond the pale to recognize you also shouldn't be buying and selling any people group because of the fact that they do bear the image and the hope ought be that they would become believers. Believers. And so what we need to recognize is that God gets very upset with any relationship that is commodified. Do we have a problem with slavery now? Surely we've moved on. We've got the internet. We've got cell cell phones and Twitter. We've moved on, right? No, we have not, actually. In fact, trafficking is one of the largest economies, and this is really important for me to say, Still, because it has been for a long, long time. And no one people group, by the way, are particularly responsible for it. It's what everybody does and did because it's an issue of power and economics and other things that transcends our differences, actually, and flattens us in a lot of ways. And so it's important that we recognize that God is angry with this idea of of people being commodified. It's not what you were created for. It It is no way for you to be able to display in full the characteristics that he has imbued you with, nor the gifts that you have. However, he is gracious, as we saw in Ephesians, to say, if you find yourself enslaved, all is not lost. You still have power. There's still a way in which... This can be transformed. What a gift to people who were uh, disempowered and disenfranchised. We see it in the book of Philemon, right? What a beautiful story of Onesimus and, and, and a slave owner who is called to repentance and to, to, to recognize the Lord. We've seen it throughout history. Some of the best songs we have is from a guy who was a slaver himself there in England. Um, and so, so it's important that we recognize that God does not tolerate the commodification of his people, anybody who bears his image. And notice uh, the, the, the graphic description, I'll, I'll be careful, I know there are children here, but, but a little girl is sold for the pleasure of man. Now, what you need to understand there, and a little boy for a bottle of wine Now what's important to understand there that God is pointing to is he's saying you are treating that which bears my image as temporary. You would sell a child for something you will enjoy for anywhere from three minutes to an hour and a half. You you would sell something that bears my image so that you would be pleased in ways that could never glorify me no matter how you spin that record. How dare you take and think that that which bears my image is intended to be bartered for your pleasure? How dare you think that I gave these people to this world for you to do with as you please? So God, in his justice, in his just mercy, in his salvation of his people says very clearly there will be a reckoning. And for those who have commodified that which bears my image, this does not end well. Now, notice he's saying it here, and it is yet to happen. So what does that mean in terms of God's justice and character? Well, he's long-suffering. He is very patient, He longs for those who have commodified the flesh to enter into a relationship with him through a different judgment. Does he not? How do I know that? You ever heard of a man named Saul? He was was a great Pharisee. In fact, he was very effective at squashing this new religion that had had appeared uh, in uh, first century Rome there. You remember It's called Christianity. And he, with a sword in his fist, not dissimilar to the angel of the Lord, was striking people down and standing holding coats while he watched them be stoned to death. God's very own special people. And he really wasn't, if you remember, all that plussed by how Stephen died. Not in the moment. But later he had an encounter with the living Christ who said, Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the goads? You can't beat me. This isn't true religion. He blinds him, you remember, and asks a man uh, to go and help him. The guy says, you got to be kidding me. That guy's a murderer. I ain't fixing to go around him. That's that's a death sentence. God says, I told you to do it and I'll do it. Trust me. So we have within Scripture... Uh, Not just that, but many occasions. Nebuchadnezzar, you don't think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the first three guys he shoved in a fire somewhere now, do you? You don't think that Daniel's the first guy he ever fed to the lions. It doesn't seem like he was just making it up on the spot. And yet the Lord brought him in. And so it would be foolish for us to divorce from God's justice the call to evangelism and vice versa. See, what happens with justice when you forget evangelism is that you have a half measure in which no one wins and everybody suffers. If you have evangelism without justice, you have a half measure that denies the importance of the body and the physical being and is hypocritical, especially to the coming generations who are calling out prophetically to say the church has been asleep. And so we want no half measure. We want justice and evangelism. They're two sides of the same coin, by the way. Just as you can't have fasting without prayer makes no sense to do one without the other. And let me commend a resource to you that's less than 200 pages. It's Harvey Kahn's book, Evangelism and Justice, just simply titled. He does an amazing job of of hashing out how these two concepts cannot be different from each other. You can't have one without the other. And yet we've been trying like crazy to do one or the other, but never both. There's some places that do get it well. And we want to be a place who gets it well, who is biblical about it. Because if God is willing to wait for this judgment to come, who else has to wait? We do. We do. But it doesn't mean that we're not just in the meantime. It doesn't mean that we don't get engaged with unjust practices and seek to change them, unjust governances, unjust institutions, or even blindly so. It doesn't matter if they're passive or active. If the result is that the image bearers of God are being commodified, that should bother us deeply. Now, each of us is called and gifted to be bothered in different ways. As we mentioned last week, Brian Stevenson was particularly bothered with uh, how the death sentence was being used to oppress people, people who were on death row, and in particular, children. Now, he didn't go after every single solitary, unjust legal practice. Those were the two that he focused on uniquely and had a profound impact on the system and people's lives, more importantly. And it's not just that example, there are many more that we could point to and point out of people doing amazing things in the world that matter and that are pushing against that which is unjust between the now and the not yet in the name of Christ. And you may say, church ain't got no business doing all that stuff. We just need to worry about hymns and uh, uh, making sure people don't get confused about Advent and other things. Uh, kind, um, okay, let me say that the church is not just an institution and building, it's you. And so, yes, my primary re- responsibility and that of the elders of this church and the deacons of this church is prayer and the word. Your primary responsibility is to live that out in a tangible way as ambassadors of, what word? Reconciliation, just spiritual No, physical as well. So you don't get it conflated by saying that the church has no business caring about issues of justice and injustice. Yes, the church must because you are the church representing it in the world. And the biggest tool that you have is prayer. Maybe you say, I don't have a law degree. I don't know what to do. We'll start by praying, start by listening, have some conversations, get involved in some discussion groups. We'll have a discussion group about Just Mercy coming up in January when the movie comes out and you've got multiple options to figure out the story. And we want to have those conversations because they're hard and there's unique perspectives and different circumstances. But hear me rightly, everybody is not equally called to the same thing. You're just not. But it doesn't mean that you can willfully be ignorant. And it doesn't mean that you can willfully ignore. And it doesn't mean that you can block what other people may be trying to do. As long as it honors and glorifies the Lord. And doesn't lose out on the twin issues of evangelism and justice. And so... We have a God who cares about what happens to us in our bodies who doesn't want you to be commodified. This should be great news to every single one of us in here in varying ways. We've all experienced a commodification of some kind, both self-inflicted and imposed by someone else in varying ways, if you think about it. Whether it's how... Women are viewed in terms of just the public sphere and how that's changed culturally over time or how different races have been engaged and talked to, talked down to, talked about, not listened to, and vice versa. Ways in which men have been horrifically commodified by our culture and yet we don't see it like we all. Ways in which we have been twisted and distorted and, and hurt. And yet we've participated in so many ways. And there's a variance on that all across the board. And so what we want to do is be a people who don't allow ourselves to be commodified. We don't allow our neighbors, our brothers and sisters to be commodified. Who don't participate in the systems of commodification in ways that push back against those things. And are thoughtful and are just and genuinely declare the gospel in so doing. Just because you go to a rally and hold a sign doesn't mean you've declared the gospel, now does it? Just because you have put, uh, in all caps, with a lot of exclamation points, a response to somebody online, you've not shared the gospel, more than likely. Uh, Maybe you did it in all caps with lots of exclamation points, and and that's great, uh, but there's other ways. And so we have to recognize that those things, those spheres don't singularly make it happen. Right? And so we have to be creative. We get to be creative. We get to participate. We get to help and see things change for the glory of God. Would that we would be instruments in the Redeemer's hands. Every single one of us would know what we are gifted in and called to and go and do it for the glory of God and we'd support each other. What a gift. I long for the day when we 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 start saying, "Hey, we need to hear some testimonies of God's grace." Not just cuz I'm tired of hearing your raspy voice, but 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 I want to hear what God's doing among his people. All right? What a gift that would be when it became that that just the din of that just became so loud that we couldn't ignore it. So here what John Calvin says about this. He says in a word The prophet here shows that God will not be a half-redeemer. He's not a half-redeemer. There are no half-measures. But will continue to work until he completes everything necessary for the happy state of his church and makes it in every respect perfect, which includes justice, which includes a reckoning, which includes judgment. This is the import of the whole. It's important to recognize this isn't just an Old Testament concept. This isn't just Joel saying this. Jesus says something a lot like it. If you remember Matthew 25, in the judgment of the sheep and the goats, which is an important text, he says uh, sheep go on this side, goats go on that side, and here's how I'm dividing me all up. Sheep, well, that which you've done to the least of these, you've done it unto me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was, you know, in all these different circumstances, you took care of me. And to the goats, no, you didn't. And I say, well, is is he talking about social justice? No, not at all. They're not being saved by their works. Their salvation is being affirmed by their works. If you remember, the sheep said, well, Jesus, we didn't know it was you. There are some scholars who think, well, no, no, no. Jesus was talking about only, that they only did that for Christians. Mm-hmm. No. Remember what they just said? Jesus, we didn't know it was you. We didn't know it was people who were abiding with you. We didn't know it was people who were filled with your spirit. We didn't know it was people who you loved necessarily, but we just did it because it was the thing to do what was in front of us. You don't let somebody go hungry in front of you. You don't let somebody go unvisited and lonely and broken. You don't let somebody not be ministered to who is hurting. You don't not pray for somebody who's in a difficult circumstance. What's wrong with us? Remember the parable of the good Samaritan. Samaritans. (laughs) Their syncretistic theology, all that crazy worship. They were like first century charismatics. You You couldn't deal with them. And and yet, he's the only one who got it. Of The guy laying on the side of the road, everybody else, just like the people who wouldn't put the fire out and trying to figure out how to hocus-pocus cure a kid with a demon, instead, they walked right by him and justified why they didn't get involved. You might want to hear that. Because what are we walking by? What are we ignoring that we've seen? from a justice perspective, that we just don't want to get involved. We think it's actually higher religion to let someone perish than to step to their hurt and need. Even if it is perceived, perception is real in its consequences. We we shouldn't ignore any time someone says to us, I'm hurting, would you listen to me? This is, this is destroying me. Would you hear me out? Would you pray for me? Why would we ignore those opportunities? So, what injustices are the nations being judged for here by God in the Valley of Jehoshaphat? We've talked about it. The injustice of commodification, to treat people as if they were unworthy of relationship. Uh huh. We <laughs> need to be careful there. There's a lot of ways in which we do that. And we need to think that through. And then how should this shape our view of justice and what we care about and apply the gospel to by getting involved? There are a lot of justice issues in this broken and fallen world, a lot. But we're located in a specific time and place, and there's a few that are right at our front door that we should probably be thinking about. And opportunities that we can jump right into until we maybe figure out what we're called to otherwise. And if you're passionately called to mission somewhere else, amen, how do we get you to go? How do we prepare you? How do we equip you? How do we send you? And then, what proves foundational to our views of justice? That's really important. Is it, is your is foundational to your view of justice that you just don't want to be bothered? That because you don't see it's a problem, you don't understand what all the ruckus is about? Because you and your narrow frame and, life experience should dictate all that. So let's be careful that we are not limiting opportunities that God is granting to display his glory for the sake of evangelism, that people would be redeemed, both the hurting and the ones who hurt. That's a, one area where I think we really struggle is ministry to the oppressor. Maybe that's who got visited in jail sometimes. Who knows? Turn back to the text, if you would, and let's look at verses 4 through 8 and the generational cost of injustice. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back... I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. This is a hard word. Notice what God says. Again, the, the people of Tyre and Sidon are like, as, as judgment's being pronounced, they're going, well, hold, hold, hold on a second, partner. We can work something out. You know what? We got some silver and gold that you might recognize and won't back. So notice what they're doing to the relationship with God. What are they doing? Commodifying the relationship with God. They're trying to barter with what was already his in the first place. We don't do that now, do we? Yes, we do. And notice his response. He is none too happy. What are you to me, O oh, Tyre and Sidon? And if you remember anything about Tyre and Sidon, biblically in Isaiah, oh, they thought they were something special. That king of Tyre, he really thought he was something you ought to take a good long look at and enjoy. He thought he was in charge of the world. We don't have anybody who struggles with that, now do we? No, we do. Always, historically. Why? Because principalities and powers are going to be here until Jesus shows back up. That's why we should be a just people to evidence who God is and what he's really about and what's coming. And so he swats away their offering. And he says, you fool. What it's going to cost you is your generations. See, you're not just doing this in a vacuum. It's not just you who are in charge. It is you who are costing. And again, notice this doesn't happen straight away. God is patient and forbearing. He's speaking it as if it is a past tense reality because if they don't repent and change, if they don't come to know him, then this is a sure reality. There is no other. And so he says to them, if you want to drink blood, I'll give you blood. If you want to sell and commodify people, I will let you taste of commodification yourselves. You may say, well, that seems harsh. I think it's harsher to ignore the warning. I think it's a lot harsher to set up the next generation with an economic reality that commodifies people. I think it's a much harsher reality to have people grow up not knowing the difference and therefore don't see it as unjust. It's just the way it is. It's what I grew up in. Why should we try to change it? Sound familiar at all? And so it's important that you not set up, we not set up our children for judgment. That we, as Joel has called us to do, would make sure that the coming generations understand God's justness and his justice and his judgment as aspects of his salvation, as aspects of his holiness, as aspects of his grace and his mercy. To not teach them that is to teach them a half measure that is going to destroy them, for us not to be involved in the issues of justice that are all throughout our culture in some form or fashion, and to do so as people who have joy and hope, not as those who act as if we have lost, and Jesus doesn't reign. If we don't teach them that, where are they supposed to get that from? Who's going to give them that message? Because notice what the world is calling for. The world is calling for a different kind of justness that is actually fluid and flexible depending on who's in power. And it's calling for them to recognize that, no, you don't need God. You need our systems, our institutions that will make life easier for you. You will not have to choose. We'll choose for you. That's not a free people. That's not a people who are using their minds and their gifts and creativity. What kind of craziness is that? So we need to be the people who are raising the generations who recognize this cost for centuries. We still bear the the burden of an economic system that was critical to what we thought was critical to the rise of this nation. You can't get out from under it. We can't run from it. We're suffering under the weight of it. Better that we would engage it in spirit and truth, using the full range of the means of grace and the full cadre of heavenly blessings that the Lord has given to us so that we can heal and be a church united instead of a church perpetually divided from an issue that's over 400 years old. So we are in the South. We have the legacy of race, race relations, slavery, the whole nine. And you may say, I didn't do any of that. I don't, it doesn't, that's not what matters. What matters is you're a Christian who recognizes that there are people who are suffering from that in some way, shape, or form. So the conversation has to be had. In the South, we didn't really shove Chinese people into caves and blow them up like they did out west. We don't even talk about that hardly, like what we did to those folks, and, and, and some other things as well. But yes, we, we need to be a people who are willing to engage in issues of justice. In, in fact, in the state of Georgia, DeKalb County outranks most of, uh, in the state for abortions. Is that a justice issue we need to have some engagement with? and and ways that are going to be able to share the gospel and not just be about justice and law, but also about evangelism. So there are many issues that are right at our door that we don't have to go looking for. And we can't save the whole world. That'd be arrogant. But there's issues that we need to be engaging in. And you can't say it doesn't matter because it matters to God. You can't say that's not your issue. (laughs) You grew up here. It is your issue. You can't escape it, and you're surrounded by people for whom it is an everyday reality in a way that it's not for you. Right? And so make sure that you are not being unbiblical in your justice and not thinking through the ways in which God pairs together evangelism and justice and cares about these things. It's interesting in the book of Revelation. When you get to the final judgment, it's the, it's the last, it's, it's last. of so the seven horns blows and the seven bowls are coming out and it's the end of God's judgment. And the first three are poured out and it's terrible. The angels actually pause and worship after the third bowl, which is where the rivers turn to blood. And they worship and they, they, they cry out about God's justice and judgment and the chorus that sings with them is the martyrs from under the altar. Just are you in your judgment, O Lord. You know why they can cry that? Because they've suffered. Because they have tasted of the sword of the oppressor. And so God being just and judging is actually, it is part of the story. There will be a reckoning. It would be a half God, a half measured God who does not call these things to account and the new heavens and the new earth take them away. The question is, what kingdom are we participating in? The question is, what savior do we think has come and what all does he really care about? Does he not care about this world and your bodies and what happens to you in them? Does he not care about his church and what she looks like as a representation to the world? And so it's important that we recognize How important the issue of justice is to the Lord our God. And the key issue of justice is the commodification of those who bear his image. Listen to what Raymond Dillard says about this. He says, It is striking that in their polemic against the nations and their idols, the prophets never appeal to the loftier ethics of their religion or the greater sublimity of their theology or the beauty of the temple architecture. Their boast is always that it is Yahweh who controls history and that it is his ability to fulfill his word that demonstrates that he is God. So we can participate in these very difficult and messy circumstances because it is God who controls history. It is God who will say in the end, it is God who will gather. I don't need to be the just judge now. No, as Romans would call me to do, instead, I'm to engage in loving my enemies so that they might become, you do know that the pouring of coals on the head is purifying, not destroying and burning to death. So I would rather see that person become my brother or sister than see them burn. So we have ministry to both the oppressor and those who are oppressed. Let us not forget that. What generational impact does injustice have on both the oppressed and the oppressed? We've seen this. Have you seen the impact on the youth and subsequent generations in Germany after the fall of the Third Reich? They're still struggling. Have you seen the impact that it's had on on the people of China and the generations of China? After the Boxer Rebellion and the taking over of communism in China, have you seen the impact on the youth of America after all that we've been through? for all that we have struggled with, the generations have been impacted and we need not ignore that. And just because it may not be your hot-button issue at this time doesn't mean you can turn a blind eye. Doesn't mean we can't participate. So, can God be bargained with when it comes to injustice? Can we say to him, yeah, I, look, I know I really didn't care about that issue, and I know, you know, like, I'll I tune some people up online with some, hey, why don't you take care of your own community, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so, uh, and not looking at the reasons why the communities are in the conditions that they're in and have the impact that they're having. I, 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 yeah, I did all that. But I went to church, man, I tithe. I may have even tithed, like, 4%. National average is 1.5, so I... I mean, i got to be in front of somebody, right? God, oh, so you're offering me back what I gave to you. Huh. Be careful. What's Matthew 7 say to us? Some of you are going to show up. Lord, Lord, look at all that we did in your name. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What is his law? It is just, always. It is loving. It is good. May we be those who represent both God's justice and his holiness as well as his grace and his mercy and forgiveness, his long-suffering. May we display the fullness of the character of God, not a half-measured God. Joel 3, 1-8 teaches us that God is just in his judgment of those who make commodities of his image bearers. So we are called to reflect God's justice in our relationships to those who bear his image. We are not to participate in the commodification of his people. We are not to even allow it around us. We are to engage in the pushing back of those things, the deconstructing of any sort of system that's going to commodify people, especially within our spheres of influence. And then we are to recognize the cost of injustice to the generations of both the oppressor and the oppressed. You may say to me, but Cameron, that sounds costly. We We get hurt. Somebody got to cry out from under the altar? It's just part of it. Jesus suffered. We will suffer. Just guaranteed. And so if your comfort is greater than the justice that God cares most about and that these people not be commodified, well, then you have your reward. Is that a hard word? Is that, man? that's tough to go to lunch after all that. Listen, Jesus loves you. You've been warned. Jesus loves you and wants us to join with him in the work that he's called us to. Jesus loves us so much he doesn't want you to be a commodity. He doesn't want you to be a commodity in terms of how you think about yourself and those around you. He doesn't want you to be part of systems that don't care for you, body and soul. Jesus loves us so much that he died for us. in the greatest and most unjust moment in all of history, an innocent man for the sins of the, his people, past, present, and future. And yet that injustice, that judgment, led to our salvation. May we be people who reflect that in cruciform and resurrected, ascended and Holy Spirit-filled truth and the hope of, the, of Christ's return. This is not always how it will be. May we be that church. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you invite us into such beautiful work that it's meaningful. We could see things genuinely change. We could see systems transformed to better love and care for your image. But people's hearts transform from stone to flesh. Those who actually have trafficked in flesh, that those people would be broken. And those who've been trafficked, that they would have their dignity restored. Lord, Call us into those places. Let it it be in our spheres of influence where we could participate in those things. How can we, your church, Christ Community in Kennesaw, Georgia, be a more just church who cares about the whole of the person, body and soul, past, present, and future? We would be a more holistic and complete church who worships, the fullness of who you are, not a half-redeemer. God, help us to be both evangelistic and just, not one or the other, not tipped one way or the other, but rightly balanced for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.